the National Archives podcast series. This talk is called Information at War, the Ministry of Information, 1936 to 1946. It was presented by Professor Simon Elliott as part of the summer lecture series on Thursday, the 18th of July, 2019, at the National Archives, Kew. Good evening, everyone. My name is Lucy Fletcher, and I'm the Director for Government here at the National Archives. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you all to our very first event in this year's annual summer lecture series. And for those of you who are new to our lecture series, they form a vital part of our very ambitious research programme that we have here at Kew. And as part of the programme, we ask leading academics uh, to draw inspiration from the priorities that are set out in the National Archives research strategy. And throughout the summer, we invite them to explore issues around an annual theme that is underpinned by the incredibly rich collections that we're holding here at Kew. And this year, our lecturers have focused on research priorities relating to openness, access and use, and people, place and rule. And their work has, as you can see, given rise to this year's theme, which is State and Society, Cultures of Communication. And just before I introduce our lecturer for this evening, uh, we would like to thank the Friends of the National Archives for their generous sponsorship of the lecture series this summer. So, it is now my great pleasure to introduce Simon Elliott, Professor Emeritus of the History of the Book at the University of London. Simon has published on quantitative book history, publishing history, history of lighting, library history, and the history of reading. He was general editor of the four-volume History of Oxford University Press from 2013 to 17, and recently directed a large-scale project on the communication history of the Ministry of Information in partnership with us at the National Archives, the MOI being the subject of this evening's lecture. So, please join me in giving a very warm welcome to our inaugural guest speaker for the 2019 National Archives Summer Lecture Series, Professor Simon Elliott. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that very kind and welcoming introduction. And thanks to the TNA and indeed to the friends. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to be here to talk to you this evening about information at war. Now, the Ministry of Information, which was formally established almost exactly 80 years ago, in September 1939, in London University's Senate House, was responsible for communicating news and opinions about the conduct of the war, not only to the British people, but also more generally to much of the rest of the world. That is, to all those in the nations of the empire, to allied countries, to friendly nations, and to those countries which remained neutral. One of its principal roles was to monitor and maintain the morale of the British people. A tricky business when propaganda was often a dirty word and when the aim was to save an open society threatened on all sides by closed and authoritarian ones. Additionally, the MOI was responsible for relations with UK newspapers and for censoring them. 
It conducted these many missions, not only through print of a variety of sorts, but also by means of radio broadcasts, mostly through the BBC, through photographs, films, public meetings, and static and travelling exhibitions. During the early years of the war, it even employed loudspeaker vans to tour bombed areas to give information about where and how to get emergency shelter, food, and clothing. Now, that's a watercolour of Senate House, painted around 1942, when the MOI had taken over almost the whole building. The MOI was, in other words, an extraordinarily large, active centre for the transport and transmission of information, using all the means of mass communication then available to it. But it wasn't just about sending information out. By mid-1940, it had developed its own home intelligence unit, which used many of the techniques that mass observation had pioneered in the 1930s to survey public opinion throughout the UK. This feedback was conveyed in weekly reports produced until the end of 1944, reports which were read intently by MOI staff responsible for monitoring the country's morale and identifying things that might negatively affect it, such as rumour. In other words, here was a communication system, which, unlike most other contemporary publishers and communicators, had a rapid feedback loop, one that alerted it to its successes and its failures, and acquired it, often within a few weeks, radically to change a given public relations strategy. The MOI was a complicated organisation, which combined politicians, civil servants, and a remarkable ragbag of writers, producers, publishers, filmmakers, journalists, commercial artists, and advertising men. Some of these people brought in on a temporary basis, others acquired a semi-permanent status. Few other organisations could have contained and used, effectively for the most part, such a diverse range of people as Cecil Beaton, Nicholas Bentley, Sir Kenneth Clarke, Nancy Cunard, Elizabeth David, Arthur Kerstler, Cecil Day-Lewis, Paul Nash, Nicholas Pevsner, Neville Shute, Mervyn Peake, Laurence Olivier, and Dylan Thomas, and John Betching. I want to illustrate this epic effort of communication by looking at surviving evidence of its activities. Let's start with the wide variety of ways in which it used that most common of media, print. From 1941 onwards, the MOI published a sequence of popular paperbacks under the general title of Official War Books. The first of these was the Battle of Britain, published on 28th of March, 1941. It was an unillustrated 32-page pamphlet, plainly bound, as you can see, and selling at threepence. This was a standard, bleak, civil service printed product. Despite this, over 300,000 copies were speedily sold. It was at this point that enough of those working for the ministry realised that this already encouraging demand could be multiplied if only the MOI used the language of commercial art and of photojournalism that had come to full power between the two wars. Using the techniques pioneered by Picture Post and its rivals, the second edition had a striking graphic cover and an equally vivid title page. This was packed with photographs, maps and diagrams 
and was precise at precisely sixpence. There, for instance, is a diagram revealing the control system, which controlled the, the scrambling of fighters to intercept German bombers. Of course, there are significant omissions. There is no mention of radar and no mention, of course, of Bletchley Park. But at least the general pattern was clear and explanatory, and people could comprehend it and could match it with, for instance, BBC news broadcasts. Here is a vivid representation of the third phase of the Battle of Britain. By the end of 1941, this version had sold 4.8 million copies within Britain alone. Combining UK sales and licensed sales abroad, it is estimated that this title alone had sold about 15 million copies by the end of the war. The second in the series, Bomber Command, published in October 1941, sold 1.36 million in just over a month. By March 1944, the official war books series had total sales of over 23 million and was making a profit of around £30,000 a year. Another title, Frontline, was issued in French, Italian, Russian and Arabic, while combined operations was translated into no fewer than 12 languages. The war books were consciously designed to be two books in one. A book in the series could be read as though it were a penguin special with large quantities of explanatory prose, but for those who could not or would not read at that level, it was a picture book packed with graphic explanations. A wartime social survey report on official war books concluded that, and I quote, the audience for MOI books is to some extent the same as the audience for illustrated magazines and small topical books of the Penguin non-fiction type. A remarkable 74% of respondents to this survey considered the publication of these books to be a good use of the government's time and money. But it was not just books. There were also posters such as Dig for Victory, which are printed in their hundreds of thousands and millions. Here is a photograph of a bombed urban area with hoardings surrounding the bombed out area and an array of posters. You'll notice that Dig for Victory is featured as the second poster from the left. The bleakness and the predominance of the posters suggests a quotation from George Orwell's 1984, which I give you now. Outside, even through the shut window pane, the world looked cold. Down in the street, the eddies of wind were whirling dust and torn paper into spirals. And though the sun was shining and the sky a harsh blue, there seemed to be no colour in anything, except the posters that were plastered everywhere. By the way, this is just one of 19 references to posters in 1984. Reluctantly setting all this aside for the moment, I'm going to concentrate on just one aspect of the print campaign, the printing and publishing undertaken essentially for the market abroad. That is, print directed at allied, friendly and neutral countries. From 1941, the MOI was printing at least two monthly magazines for international consumption. War in Pictures, had a print run of about 450 to 500,000 copies a month. And Neptune, a magazine focusing on the activities of the British armed services and their allies, was commonly printed in 450 to 600,000 copies a month, with the encouragement to read it and then pass it on 
as a way of maximizing circulation, very similar to the approach to Penguin books. But it was not just the monthly print runs that were impressive. It was also the distribution pattern. Quite commonly, both magazines would be distributed to over 80 areas each month, an extraordinary logistical achievement in the midst of a world war. This particular issue of Neptune, for instance, was sent to, among many other places, Canada, Australia, Southern Rhodesia, Barbados, Ceylon, Panama, Mexico, and Congo, and printed in English, French, and Spanish editions. In all, this issue of Neptune was distributed to 83 countries and areas. 9,000 to India, 25,000 to the USA, 400 to Afghanistan in French, and no fewer than 80 copies to the remote island of St. Helena. As with many MOI products, such journals use strikingly modern graphic design to maximize impact. In these popular publications, images were as important as text, and photographs and graphic art were used extensively, often spread over more than one page, as we saw on the title page of the Battle of Britain, and frequently bled over to the margins to the edge. The impact of the graphic design revolution of the 1920s and 30s was evident in almost every publication and not only in terms of the effective use of photography, but also in the way in which standardized icons were used to represent statistics, a process which showed the influence of Otto Nordat's work on isotype in Vienna and later in Oxford, a series of postcards illustrating various achievements. The top one illustrates the tonnage of German shipping sunk in red and the tonnage of British material sunk. Postcards were extensively printed and distributed, not only to convey information, but also excitement and adventure through vivid pictorial representations. Not all MOI postcards were packed with graphically rendered statistical information. Quite often, they resorted to even stronger traditions in 20th century visual culture, such as the cartoons and comics of the 1920s and 30s. The comics of the interwar period had a readily identifiable impact on other products of the MOI, such as the magazine Flag of Victory, which was published in a number of languages. Here's the front page of a typical issue of the magazine. Vivid diagrammatic images, such as cutaway drawings, were also extensively used to explain the technology of current weaponry. This is the Mosquito fighter bomber. Anyone who remembers the striking images presented in British comics of the 1950s and 60s, particularly Eagle and Girl, will recognize at least one of their origins in these products of the MOI. All forms of popular cultural image making were called upon and used in order to support the war effort and convey Britain's case, including the Hollywood treatment of Princess Elizabeth, who is here represented as a Hollywood starlet. The MOI was determined not simply to distribute globally in an undifferentiated way. It recognized that different regions and different markets had different audiences with different needs. And that print had to follow the contours of specific markets if Britain's case was to be effectively made. So, for instance, we get a pamphlet directed specifically at Roman Catholic audiences and countries. It was very widely distributed in South America. Hitler's war on the Catholic Church was an absolutely vivid portrayal of Christ crucified not on a cross, but on a swastika. 
for children in Arabic-speaking cultures of a series of ventures called Johnny and Ahmed, adventures in the English countryside, clearly emphasizing the equality and the friendliness of the two boys. In for Persia, we have a spoof Persian miniature with Hitler as the evil caliph, dreaming of the coming of Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. And for Africa, a vivid British tanks and guns guard African homes. In the last case, the empire responding to such advertisements provided men and materials. And then Britain, in return, expressed its gratitude in print. The thanks was not general, but targeted to specific countries. Your bombers in action, thank you, Gold Coast. At the other end of the scale, the MOI could produce something small and very modest. Something could be scattered from a car or an aeroplane. Flyers that could be hidden in the palm of a hand and yet carried a punch. Here's a flyer that gives the recipient information about how to access BBC broadcasts. And at the bottom you will see, so listen to the voice of Britain and of freedom. And here is a stencil, much in use when Britain began to supply all sorts of materials to its new ally, the Soviet Union, after July 1941. Greetings from the British people and the same in Russian. By the early 20th century, offset lithography had made it much easier to print on surfaces other than paper. Commercial printing on standard food containers, such as biscuit and sweet teas, is a notable example. The MOI also exploited this technical advance. Here's a lapel badge featuring the face of Churchill. No fewer than 30,000 of these were sent to Guatemala and 40,000 to Persia. I imagine if any survivor or collector's items. But it wasn't just printed materials. As one of the most popular and widely used of new media, film was an important channel of communication for the MOI. The ministry produced nearly 20,000 short and feature-length films during the war. Here, for instance, is Anthony Asquith directing Peggy Ashcroft in a short film about 10 minutes length called Channel Incident, which was based upon the Dunkirk experience, this in September 1940. And here is Captain Roy Bolting and Colonel Frank Capra editing Tunisian Victory in 1944. And here is an absolutely standard poster announcing a new film showing but of course the details the time the locality are to be filled in later and here's an example of such a film show it's in 1944 the canteen of london transport where a film 16 millimeter film is being shown as with printed material films traveled widely each region of the country had a number of cinema vans uh, which toured their areas, setting up shows in local venues. Here is an MOI film van arriving in a town in Bampshire in 1943. And even further afield, there is an MOI cinema van, which you can see British Ministry of Information, in Eritrea in 1942. While we're on the subject, I should mention that in 1940, the travel writer and MOI employee, Freya Stark, 
was traveling around North Yemen, accompanied by a projector, which allowed her to show films in, among other places, the harems of Salah. What those in the harems thought of such films as Everyday Life in Edinburgh, <laughs> or Army Maneuvers at Aldershot, was not sadly recorded. However, one should add that at the same time, Freya Stark was also collecting information for military intelligence in Cairo and contributing to subversive propaganda among Italian communities in Aden, Libya, and East Africa. As we have seen, modern visual design was employed to maximize the impact of the MOI's messages. The most effective way of doing this was not to use flat images on a printed surface or projected onto a screen, but to offer an immersive three-dimensional experience, a sort that could be provided by an exhibition. Some were very simple and small scale, often presented in a shop window. Here, for instance, is a brief exhibition on Britain's bombing offensive of Germany in 1940. It's located in a shop in Hoban in 1940. Thousands of these were sent throughout the country. Any bombed out shop, any department store that hadn't got enough goods to display would offer a room and an exhibition of this description would be put up. A little more sophisticatedly, here is a mobile exhibition leaving Senate House. As you can see from the note on the car, private scraps in town, come and meet him. This is about saving and renewing and recycling material. They call it salvage. And you'll see in the trailer that there's a receptacle to put books in here, which can be sent to other readers or simply restock bombed out libraries or if they were particularly useless they could be pulped and used again. The main display is along the side of the trailer and of course the exhibition would be continued inside. There was a special exhibition space throughout the Second World War in Charing Cross Underground Station and the MOI put a series of exhibitions on. This is as you can see Jungle Front, it's about the war in the South Pacific. And you can see you can enter the exhibition through the uh, dense tropical foliage. Travelling exhibitions. This is a photograph of an exhibition called Off the Ration, which is how to grow and cultivate your own food. And here are a couple of members of the ATS loading various cages. With and You can probably just detect that in the top right there is the kind to keep in other words the hens that would really lay eggs and then you could use them later in food and below that the kind to weed out this is ruthless Darwinism but then after all if you're trying to feed your family you can't afford to be sentimental the largest exhibition of all was one devoted to the British Army in 1943 and this is quite a rare colored transparency of that exhibition. It was set up in the basement of the bombed out site of John Lewis in Oxford Street. This was such a huge exhibition that it couldn't easily be toured, but it went later to Birmingham and then finally Cardiff. Print, films and exhibitions. All these modes of communication to the public were firmly under the control of the MRI. Fighting the war by mobilizing and projecting information was clearly a huge task involving thousands of people working on many fronts and using many different media. 
all at the same time. It was a complicated and expensive business. How the public generally or individually responded to the MOI's efforts was not controllable. And in an essentially still open society, those responses might be forceful and contrary. And those forceful views might affect how others received the same information. In other words, what was complicated became complex when one factored in public reaction. This would be true, of course, for a newspaper advertisement, a leaflet, a book, a broadcast, a film, or an exhibition. However, this complexity was at its most immediate in an activity also run by the ministry, which we had not yet considered. Public meetings. This was a large-scale operation. Between 1940 and the end of the war, the MOI was responsible for more than 160,000 public meetings throughout the country. It was clear to those in the MOI that public meetings had a function that could not be adequately performed by any other medium. In part, this was a matter of satisfying public demand. In the years immediately before 1939, political parties had been running public meetings at the rate of thousands a year, and voluntary organisations probably matched that number. So the public expected this form of communication. However, it was more important than that. It was also more personal than radio broadcasts, and more trusted than the printed word, which was known to be subject to censorship. As meetings were held at particular places and on particular times, they could be designed to deal with specific or local problems and the questions that arose from them. Most meetings were covered extensively by the local press, so their impact was far wider than their immediate audience. Above all, and I quote the MOI here, the spoken word at a meeting is a personal link with the government. The mere holding of a public meeting at which questions can be asked is an act of confidence. There were a, a large number of temporary or full-time speakers who went round the country, and all those speakers had their own posters, which would summarise their biography and then allow you to fill in the details of the meetings where and when. There's John Dodds, and there's Eileen Bittcott. There were large public meetings, war commentary meetings, open-air meetings, street appeals, and cinema appeals. Speakers were also sent to address voluntary society meetings, factory meetings, meetings of British and Allied forces, and even lectures in schools. What surprised the MOI was the success of outdoor and factory meetings, using loudspeaker vans to get to audiences which, even in remote locations, could be numbered in their hundreds. Outdoor meetings in London were run daily from 19th of June to end of July 1940, in Hyde Park. Many of the larger public meetings of voluntary society meetings would normally consist of an introduction of the speaker by the chair of the meeting or by a local MP, followed by the speaker's talk, which usually lasted between 45 and 60 minutes. This was then followed by a question and answer session. The meeting closed by a vote of thanks, usually given, if the chair were a member of the political party, by a representative of one of the other parties. This was very important. It was a means of assuring that the meeting could be considered in MOI terms as all party and therefore fair and balanced. Questions raised in the Q&A session might be very specific but not very relevant. 
In a meeting in Northumbria, one of the most famous of the MOI speakers, the novelist Bernard Newman, spoke for an hour about the strategic significance and the problems of the Mediterranean, only to be asked by one questioner whether blind men ought to pay rates for streetlights. <laughs> However, much more common in 1940 were questions about the reliability of government information in particular of Air Ministry statistics about British bombing raids on Germany and the relative losses of German and British fighters during the Battle of Britain. There was no way of protecting speakers from embarrassing or awkward questions. Newman was an experienced public speaker and could provide an honest answer which was nevertheless framed in the most positive way possible. He also embraced current technology wherever he could. He carried lantern slides to illustrate various of his topics. He frequently spoke in cinemas and sometimes used the films being shown there as the basis for his talks. In factory meetings, he often asked the radio be switched on so he could comment on the latest news immediately after it had been broadcast. One talk he gave at the Victoria Barracks in Belfast to 250 officers was transcribed verbatim by two members of the ATS, typed up, copied, and a copy then given to each officer so they could give the talk to his own unit. A more sophisticated version of this occurred later in the war, when a factory boss in London recorded all Newman's talks to his workers and then loaned the resulting records out to Home Guard, Civil Defence, and other groups. Of course, reports of meetings might not concentrate on the main argument, but instead on what the speaker said during the question and answer session, particularly if it were unguarded or off-message. The MOI had on file newspaper reports that sometimes troubled its higher echelons. However, most publicity was good publicity, and Newman was delighted to boast that when his activities were covered extensively. On a five-day visit to Northern Ireland in 1940, press publicity exceeded, and I quote Newman, 450 column inches, all first-class propaganda. It would have cost the MOI more than 200 pounds in advertising rates. The uncontrollable nature of the public meeting became palpable with the publication of the Beveridge Report in late 1942, with its proposal for a post-war welfare state. By early 1943, requests for speakers on the Beveridge Report were in their hundreds, and at least three written requests for Beveridge himself to address public meetings had been made from three very different but alliteratively linked towns of Bradford, Bournemouth and Bangor. Given that Churchill was not keen on beverage and the war cabinet was divided on the matter, the MOI felt that it could do nothing until the government had decided its policy on the report. However, given the open nature of any meeting that encouraged questions to the speaker, this was not as inhibiting as it might seem. The report from Wales made this clear, quote, we are getting a number of questions in on social security and the beverage report, and several of our speakers have had to deal with them. Even an MP, A.S. Commons Carr, KC, could be ambushed. He was billed to talk on the Middle East, but did, I quote, at the request of the audience, devote some part of his speech to the report. Clearly, the MOI needed to assess the impact of its huge and diverse output, so it could monitor both successes and failures and adjust its communication tactics accordingly. As I've already mentioned, it did this by producing home intelligence reports and wartime social surveys. And here is a page from one of those surveys. The range of these topics covered by these two forms of social survey is too broad to be discussed in general. 
So I will illustrate their use by looking at just one aspect, the MOI's interest in readers and reading in the UK in the first years of the war. On reading these reports, what is apparent immediately is that the MOI was interested not just in the reading of books and newspapers, but in individuals' and groups' relations to the various ways in which information was being conveyed to them. Responses, therefore, to advertisements, to posters, to radio broadcasts, to films, and to exhibitions were all equally important as far as the MOI was concerned. It was reading, but in the sense of scanning a host of media and extracting information and opinions from them all. This allowed the MOI to envisage each individual as being surrounded by a medley of voices which modified each other, or which cancelled each other out, or which collectively or individually were misunderstood, or forgotten, or ignored. We mustn't be sentimental about reading, and the MOI certainly was not. Most reading experience is not transformational or memorable. Even when it is remembered, it may well be remembered partially or mistakenly, the reader asserting an inalienable right to edit and shape experience for his or her own intellectual and emotional convenience. It was these sorts of problems with which the MOI had to struggle. Let's take a look at a few reading experiences the MOI discussed in its reports in the early 1940s. Some studies were broad and speculative, such as the discussion on the reading of astrology columns in the newspaper. This is what the MOI said of astrology. About two-thirds of the adult population probably glance at or read some astrological feature regularly or occasionally, and about four out of ten have some degree of belief or interest in them. There are indications that this belief or interest has increased since the war. Those who make astrology a major element in their daily conduct are few, but those who are influenced in smaller ways or in their general outlook on turn of events are many. People want to believe in something which at least appears to interpret events and trends in our complex and dangerous civilization. A civilization by which a great many people are confused and worried and in which many of their certainties are destroyed. The boom in astrology may be regarded as a symptom rather than the cause of the decline in Christian belief as opposed to conduct among working people, of the absence of any fully satisfying social code and of the absence of any satisfactory external standard against which to measure current events. To feelings of worry and insecurity, it offers immediate, though temporary, antidotes and sedatives, which are continually renewed, end quote. What most concerned the MOI was the way in which astrology promoted personal rather than communal interests at a time when the great stress had to be on, we were all in it together, not as individuals, but collectively. I quote, the long-term effect of belief in astrology is probably more to stress false confidences than real ones, to emphasize personal interests rather than common interest and economic rather than moral or spiritual issues. More commonly, however, the home intelligence reports presented studies of particular, mostly MOI-produced material. For instance, on Sunday 2nd of March 1940, an advertisement using graphics to explain how to cope with incendiary bombs was widely published in the Sunday papers. 
The Home Intelligence Report suggested that, I quote, there is general agreement that the advertisement was seen and read by the majority of the public. Evidence of mass observation shows that in a small sample of interviews, approximately 60% had seen and read the advertisement. In a village in Worcestershire, where a detailed study was made, rather over half those questions had seen the advertisement, but many of these had not been sufficiently interested to study it in detail. However, the visual element was responded to positively. Quotes, a pictorial method of presentation was everywhere praised, but there were important criticisms of special aspects. Detailed interviews showed that the pictures had been studied with care. They'd been read, in other words. The commonest criticism was of the inaccuracy of certain positions taken up by the firefighter. He held his head far too high. He's changed his hand. The report's conclusion was optimistic. Quote, the advertisement appears to have registered well and its pictorial form was generally appreciated. Detailed interviews showed that freedom from anxiety about various problems involved. Although few people had experience of dealing with firebombs, the majority appeared to have confidence that they could tackle them successfully. Now, the bombing of civilian targets and responses to the bombing were of great interest for the MOI. In these situations, readers were concerned not only with their own personal reactions, but of others' possible reactions, including the enemies. For instance, it was reported that in Germany, I quote, sorry, it was reported in Coventry, I quote, on April 11th, 1941, the day following the second serious raid, there was much grumbling that the new raids were the result of optimistic press statements after Coventry's first blitz, indicating that the industries of the town were carrying on. There were many requests that nothing of the kind should be said on this occasion. One incident is described by the Deputy Regional Information Officer as significant and symptomatic. An anonymous note was left in a Ministry of Information loudspeaker car which read, It's time the so-called Ministry of Misinformation was closed down. Any more blah about Coventry factories not being affected and you ought to be hounded out of the city. This feeling of sensitiveness has continued. An article in the Daily Sketch of April 12th headed, Coventry carried on as before, was regarded by the public as likely to provoke further raids. But the greatest problem presented to the MOI by readers was their extensive and recurrent scepticism. Unlike today, when false news, non-news and improbable accounts are generated and consumed by an audience more concerned with feelings and facts and more likely to be interested in tweets than truth, the readers of 1940 doubted lots of things. They feared being bamboozled, tricked into false optimism, misled by what they suspected was propaganda. They resented being patronised. They'd been told, and most believed, that they were fighting for truth and liberty, and even in the middle of a desperate phase of the war, did not want to see those values subverted. For instance, many readers expressed scepticism when presented with accounts of the Battle of Britain. On Saturday, 10th of August, 1940, it was recorded that, I quote, our air losses are constantly compared with those of Germany, and since German communiques are widely heard or read in this country, people are at a loss to understand the reasons for our disproportionate losses. Without interpretation and explanation, vague suspicions grow, 
The recent publication of the comparative table of air losses brought many comments illustrating this. Quote, I thought the losses were about five to one, not two to one. It's not as favorable as I thought. I wish I felt sure we were always told the truth. It became obvious to the MOI through a variety of reports that readers and listeners had their confidence raised by detailed, even technical descriptions of the conflicts, which gave those readers a feeling of being trusted with the truth. For instance, on 14th of August, 1940, the MOI reported, I quote, every day provides us with some further evidence of people's doubts about news. Formulae repeatedly come in from criticism. Any explanation which throws light on the background situation is welcomed. Technical descriptions, i.e. those which give the reader or listener some sense of control over the situation, are well-liked, and eyewitness accounts, whose authenticity can be guaranteed, are approved. The desire of readers to get a balanced, as far as was possible, an accurate view was an acute one. This included the desire to read the enemy's accounts, even if it were generally known that such accounts were, if anything, even less reliable. I quote again, there is evidence that the public is dissatisfied at the action of the police and wardens in collecting the German leaflets dropped on this country. These would be valued as souvenirs, and many people declare that they would like to read with their own eyes what was written in the leaflets. How might we begin to read the MI's views of reading in the broad sense, and to use that term, in the light of the speed with which, in 1940, the invading German forces were able to demolish French public morale and see panic among the population? One of the most important roles given to the MOI was to maintain the morale of the British public. Although the MOI began with a tub-thumping campaign, which alienated people, parliament, and the press in large and equal measure, Within a year or two, it became obvious to the ministry that trustworthiness, rather than upbeat declarations or over-optimistic accounts of events, was the key to maintaining morale. Readers needed to be treated as adults who could take detailed and balanced reports, even on discouraging events. So concerned was the MOI to capture and hold the trust of its readers that it recorded the following suggestion, and I quote, It has been suggested that reproductions of the German leaflets should be made for circulation. And this would satisfy those who are dissatisfied, as well as convincing opinion abroad, of our sincerity. Now, there's no evidence that this suggestion was ever taken up, but it was an indication of how seriously the MOI took the need to convince its audiences, both home and abroad. It was this willingness to listen and, if possible, to respond, which, by the end of the war, resulted in the MOI receiving the highest public approval rating of any government ministry. I want to end by looking at just one more product of the ministry's impressive output. This is a photograph from an MOI campaign designed to encourage women to find utility clothing attractive and fashionable. As part of this campaign, models were photographed on the leads of, no doubt, a Georgian building in Bloomsbury, with the enormous pyramidal structure of Senate House looming in the background. The brightly lit pretty girl in the foreground, the mass of Senate House, home of the MOI, may remind those of a post-war generation of Senate House's most notorious role in literature. George Orwell's 1984, the Ministry of Truth, or Mini-True, was modelled 
on Senate House, which Orwell knew well as his wife worked there. Here is his description of it. The Ministry of Truth was startlingly different from any other object in sight. It was an enormous pyramidal structure of glitteringly white concrete, soaring up terrace upon terrace, 300 meters into the air. However, for the generation brought up before 1939, and for whom this fashion shot was intended, its meaning was likely to have been rather different. Built between 1933 and 1937, Senate House, as a modernist center for the capital's international university, was a dazzling survivor of the Blitz and the second tallest building in London. At that time, the center for an enormous and on the whole trusted source of information, its image would have suggested resilience strength, modernity, and utility. Just the thing to be associated with sensible but attractive fashion. Understanding how a message is received, as the Home Intelligence reports make clear, is a complex business. Even more so when it comes from a time, albeit less than 80 years ago, which now seems remarkably remote. An object lesson, perhaps, in the dangers of importing or imposing modern values on a past where everything was done so differently. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.